it's Friday. Well, everybody knows when it's Friday, it's time to go inside EMS, the internationally recognized inside EMS as we inch up on 1 million downloads. We're sitting at about 825,000 listens of the Inside EMS podcast, and that's very exciting. And now coming to you live from the law offices of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, my good friend Kelly Grayson. KG, how are you? I'm good, brother. I'm good. We're uh, we're at the Vital Science Conference in Buffalo, New York, and the weather is decidedly not Buffalo-ish right now, which is a good thing. It's kind of frightful. Well, when you're up there, have some wings, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have some gonna have some wings. I guess you you can't go to Buffalo without having buffalo wings. Nancy doesn't like them, Ugh. but uh, I'll I'll pick out on them. And I'll be up there in Albany, actually, with our good friend Travis Howe in a couple weeks, actually doing some leadership stuff. So leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Let me see where you've been. Will do. You know, Kelly, so uh, you posted an article on EMS One a while back that's talking about this 360-degree kind of switch you're doing when it comes to EMS education. I want to touch on that a little bit, but I really want to focus today on the EMS instructor. I want to talk a little bit about technology, but one of the things you and Nancy McGee are doing is really kind of revolutionary, and, you know, Dan Limmer's kind of helping you, one of the the pillars in EMS education in our career field as well. Why don't you just give us a little bit of update of what you're doing, and then, uh, you know, I just want to ask you some questions about it and see how things are rolling along. Well, we had been doing a, a, uh, a hybrid uh, flipped classroom EMS program. It was, uh, if you're not familiar with the flipped classroom concept, you do your classwork at home and your homework in class. And, and it allows for more, more in-depth, uh, deeper discussion and application and synthesis of the concepts that, that, you, uh, that the students learn at home. Rather than I recite a bunch of flat facts in class and then you go home and figure out how to make sense of them and how they apply to your job, uh, we do it just the opposite. You, you acquire those facts on your own. We give you the resources. You read. You watch videos. You listen. And then when you come to class, we tell you how to apply those facts. It's much more efficient use of teaching time. And we, we did this in kind of a blended learning environment where we do a lot of online education. And, and we, we actually call our, our, our live classroom sessions knowledge integration sessions to, to reflect accurately what we're doing. But one thing that we haven't done is really change the format of our EMT class. You still start off with preparatory. You still do your, your patient assessment, your airway module, and, and then your, your medical and trauma emergencies and shock and pathophysiology and that sort of thing. We, ca- we taught it in that standard format. And Nancy pointed out one day that we're doing it backwards, said we should teach the EMT class from the back, uh, from the back to the front. And I didn't quite understand what she said. And she she meant that the first thing an EMT student generally does when he gets his textbook is is flip to the back and look at all the gory pictures and wonder when we're going to get to do all that stuff. So we're going to start at the very beginning of the class with actual patient contacts and teach our students how to talk to someone uh, through experiential learning from the very beginning of the course. And by the time they get done, they'll have finished an EMT course in the same amount of time, but they'll have upwards of 200 patient contacts and probably 100 clinical hours. And you are, you know, conducting a podcast with that as well. So you're kind of tracking it yeah. as you go. And I think what you're doing is you're really kind of revolutionizing how we go about 
teaching EMS and you know you and I have talked about for a lot of years that you know we've got to change the way that we're doing our EMS education our initial education and I think this is really mm -hmm. I don't know I don't know necessarily that this is the answer but I think that what you're doing is at least you're trying it to say this could be the answer yeah 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 we were stuck in the old paradigm and and you know I like to I like to kid myself sometimes that I'm an innovative instructor and, and I think I'm a dy uh, dynamic speaker. Uh, I can hold people's attention in a, a, uh, a lecture format and, and impart meaningful information and make it easy for students to understand. But it's still at the beginning of the class. It's a slog making that sort of uh, making all that preparatory stuff, EMS systems and communication and documentation, wellness of the EMT, all important stuff. But it's a slog getting through it because students and, and probably me subconsciously look at it as that's what I got to get through to get to the good stuff of EMT class. Now we're going to just meld that sort of stuff and blend it through the rest of our class uh, and, and get it as we go along and make a good deal of it, uh, a, a good deal of that preparatory module, uh, a prerequisite. They have to finish in line before they start class so we can delve into to patient contacts and and patient care and assessment the very first week. It's it's hard telling yourself that uh, that you've been doing it wrong all this time because you you know you look at your pass fail rates and you, you look at the feedback that your students uh, have given you in the past and and when it's overwhelmingly positive you think you're doing a great job. But the problem is is the students don't know what a great job is. They don't know that maybe another method might be far better. Um, and that's what we're going to try. We're going to see if this new method. Uh, is far better than what we're doing, and, and if it works like we hope it will, it will be a, uh, I hope it'll be a game changer in, in the way we conduct EMT classes. Well, good luck, and we're going we're gonna to follow that along as you go. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about today, Kelly, is, you know, it, it's been a while since we've kind of talked about the EMS instructor, and I would really like to kind of focus on, you know, some characteristics. I'd really like to focus on, you know, the things that we really need to do to develop the processes of being a really great EMS instructor. And then I do want to yeah. kind of close with the thought of technology and how technology has a fit in today's EMS classroom because there's a lot of instructors who are shying away from the use of technology and we've got to now come into the, you know, the future of where EMS is and, you know, really kind of start to deal with the students of today and in their own environment and the EMS instructor mm -hmm. dinosaurs have to really kind of change their focus so when we think about you know the things that we do wrong from an EMS instructor standpoint one of the things I gotta mm -hmm. remember when I first saw Microsoft PowerPoint it was in the you know the late 90s and I thought that this was really gonna be a game changer from from an EMS instructor standpoint now I started teaching yeah. I started teaching in 1986, when I was in the Air Force, they made me go to six weeks of instructor school, and I had to learn everything from, you know, presentation skills to the adult learner, to how to inspire and motivate, to how to write appropriate test questions, and for six weeks every day, I had to figure that out. And one of the, one of the quick anecdotes anecdotes I have about that is I uh, I was I was fresh off the streets of New York City, and. Uh, the instructor that I had was from Alabama, Sergeant Barnes. I'll remember him until I die because, you know, I still hear him in my head today. And I had that really deep, you know, New York accent back then. And every morning 
he made me get up and stand in front of the classroom and recite 20 words from the R section of the dictionary every morning. And every time that I got one wrong, <laughs> every time that I got one wrong, uh, he would yell with his big booming voice, say it again. And there are times when today I still, you know, will, will speak and I'll, I'll pronounce the word wrong because people will say, you don't, you don't have a New York accent, you know, when I speak and I'll hear his voice in my head, say it again when I say the word wrong. But anyway, he, he scarred me for life. But so, but, you know, I think that when we think about how we do our job as EMS instructors, I think that there's a lot of failure on the side of instructors because they're just not doing it the right way. And I think I really just want to kind of focus on some of those challenges and how we can polish those to become a great instructor. But, you know, I kind of started this, you know, I started this off by saying that, you know, I was excited when, when Microsoft PowerPoint came out, but it really made the instructor lazy instead of making them more productive. I, I, yeah. I, I, there's an element of that, but I don't, I think PowerPoint gets a bad rap. Uh, you see so many people these days uh, uh, condemn PowerPoint and death by PowerPoint this and PowerPoint that. It's still an extremely effective medium for imparting your message, but you can't rely on it too much. It's not so much the medium is the problem. It's how we utilize that medium. And that is a, a broader problem in EMS instruction and instruction in general uh, than just the tool we're using, Microsoft PowerPoint or, or you know, OneNote or uh, not OneNote, uh, Keynote, I think is the, uh, the um, Apple version of, of that software. But, you know, we, we tend to... to so many bullet points. It's not dynamic. Uh, it's static where one person stands in the front of the class and the rest of the people watch the bullet points on the slides and listen to them. And there's not a whole lot of interaction going on. You can still get that interaction if you consciously try to to involve your audience and, and set up your, your points and, and your teaching points to to make sure that you, you interact and you have some discussion. Um, but we, we spend so much time teaching students uh, or teaching potential instructors uh, the, the theory behind education and very little of the nuts and bolts of how it actually looks when you're, when you're designing a curriculum and where you're, when you're planning a lesson and that sort of thing. We hit it in broad strokes. Uh, that's true in the NAMC class, uh, instructor courses. That's true in our own state instructor courses, which pretty much uh, exactly follow the template that, that NAMC uses. I found it ironic that we spend a lot of time in those classes talking about don't do death by PowerPoint, don't lecture, 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 and invariably those courses are all delivered via lecture on a PowerPoint. <laughs> and, and it's just something that, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive. We, we, we spend three, four days teaching instructor candidates not to do these things, and the medium we're using to do it is the very thing we're telling them not to utilize. One of the things that we're doing in starter courses is, is changing that paradigm as well. No, and I think that that's really important because one of the things that we need to think about is we're the visual aid. We don't need to make the PowerPoint be the visual aid. We've got to be able to make certain that we're talking to them and we're teaching them and we're interacting with them. Now, today's EMS classroom is different. Because back in the old days, before electricity, when PowerPoint was big, 
we were teaching it based on this tool. And when I say that it made instructors lazy, it's because they're not preparing for lectures anymore. They're reading the slides and they're teaching what's off the slides as a good rule of thumb. For every hour of education that you teach, you should have four hours of preparation for that one hour. You need to continue your education. You need to find out what's new. You need to be able to look at the research that's going on. You've got to be able to make this interactive. You've got to be able to make this dynamic. You've got to be able to make this informational and not put what's on those slides. When were those slides made? You know, when we think about that from the standpoint of how long have you been reading off those slides? But that's what I mean when I say that we make it it makes the instructor lazy because we've stopped the preparation Mm -hmm. of reading, researching and looking for better ways to, you know, to, uh, you know, deliver that information. When you talk about preparatory and how boring it could be before you get to the good stuff. Well, I mean, I think that there is some, you know, it's it, as you talk, tumbleweeds are coming out of your mouth, but you still got to be able mm-hmm. to figure out how to make that interactive. And I think that, you know, we're spending a lot of time on this preparation or this PowerPoint thing, but that's what I mean that it made instructors lazy because they stopped the preparation that they needed to do to be dynamic. I got to tell you, every class I teach, for every hour, I spend four hours preparing to teach the lecture. Now, I don't care. If I've taught that class 10 times, I still have to be able to look at different information to increase my knowledge to make sure that I'm delivering the students the best that they can receive. And I think that that's the failure, Kelly. Yeah, and, you know, in, in, in my conference lectures, I, they're, they're constantly updated. Uh, I, I do lots of R&D, rip off and distribute. Uh, I, I sit in on other lectures, uh, other speakers' lectures, and, and, and if there's a particular point or a or a, 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 a strategy they use that I find useful, I'll adopt it and and really update my research as well. If there's a if there's a particular study that has some relevant points that I haven't cited, I'll do that. But it's still there's this element of plug and play. You know, you've done it so many times. Uh, you you know what's in it. You know what slides coming up. You know where to crack the jokes and what the response will be. And, and it's easy that way. But one thing you mentioned that you prep three to four hours for every class, and that's a, that's a, a, a well-followed standard. What we don't realize is that if you're going to do that in a flipped classroom or a blended learning format, especially if you're teaching someone over the Internet, um, you're going to have to do much more than that. That's the, the, the big takeaway that people need to uh, – that we, we fail to, to tell new candidate instructors as we tell them, you know, okay, don't, don't do it death by PowerPoint. Con- conduct uh, learning exercises and, and make it interactive and play games and this sort of thing. But it takes a lot more prep than just giving a PowerPoint lecture does. And instead of three to four hours, you might have to spend four, five, six, eight hours prepping for that one hour of class time there's uh, once you've got it down and once you've got the exercise constructed know how it should flow um it there's less prep time for subsequent follow-up classes but there's a whole lot of design time that you have to build into these courses and one thing that i found out um is that i can keep people's interest uh, and keep them on their edge of their seats in a in a, a lecture hall somewhere for an hour but over the internet, I ain't good enough to do that. And I don't, I don't know that anybody is. I don't think that you could put Rami Duckworth on a webcast connection 
and and have him hold people's interest for an hour to 75 minutes. Um, and most of the studies on blended learning uh, techniques uh, bear this out. They say that, you know, the optimum video time is, is 10 to 12 minutes and certainly no more than 20. And, and that's a lesson that it took me a while to, to, to learn, but it's one that we're, you know, we're, we're adopting in our classes now. So if I'm doing an online class, uh, we break it up into much, much smaller bites. But the prep time uh, is, is extensively more than just a traditional lecture and lab format uh, if you're doing a hybrid classroom, a, a flipped classroom. You know, I think that one of the things that we need to, you know, kind of figure out as well is how we're delivering that. Because we talked a lot about, you know, breaking it up into chunks and, you know, mm -hmm. finding different ways to deliver the material. And, you know, we stand in front of the room, we put the PowerPoint up, we read off the PowerPoint, we use our little laser pointer, you know, to point to little pictures and say, okay, this is the anatomy of this. And we really have to start to think about more of, you know, the paradigm shift of how we can get more interactive with classroom participation, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, we give them reading assignments and they say, go ahead and read this chapter and come in tomorrow and we're going to talk about the anatomy of the heart. Well, if we're covering all the information that's in the book because of the PowerPoint, how many people are reading that book? You know, what is it, 10% maybe if we're lucky? But I think yeah. if we can flip that to say, okay, last night's reading assignment was the pathophysiology of the cardiovascular system. Who's can come up here and talk to me about how blood a drop of blood goes through the heart? Let's go ahead and talk about that discussion. Who's coming up yeah. here? Okay. And then you make it an evaluation tool as well. Okay, mm -hmm. what we're going to do is, you know, Kelly, I'm going to have you come up here and talk about the pathophysiology of congestive heart failure. You can have two people with you up here who can be your reference. Who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. And then that team is going to yeah. go ahead and get evaluated. But I think that we do this thing all wrong when we talk about preparing uh, for teaching classes, for uh, how we approach the classes. And in this day and age where all the folks who come in are attached to their uh, iPhones and their Androids and their faces in them and they have no ability to have good interaction with people, how are we teaching yeah. these folks and being successful? Well. And and that's a that's an excellent point. You know, when we talk about the the importance of building rapport with your patients and communication, and then we don't practice that in class because we have a, a speaker and static listeners instead of a discussion going on. Uh, we I think we send an unspoken message that that talking is more important than listening, uh, or that reciting and lecturing is more important than interaction. Um, you know the 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 book thing we. When I was in college years ago, uh, when I was in college the first time in, in a traditional learning format, I almost never bought the textbooks for any of my classes. Uh, I would buy the math textbook because there are problems in there and I suck at math and I need those problems. But every other instructor uh, lectured and 99% and of their lecture came off of their uh, uh, or 99% of the test material came off their lecture. So if you took good notes, you didn't need the book. Well, we flipped that on its head with, with the blended learning, uh, with a flipped classroom, because the student is expected to acquire the facts, and we're expected to teach them how to use them. Whereas before, when I started this, this flipped classroom, uh, my journey into the flipped classroom method, uh, I made the mistake of, of repeating everything that was in the book, because I didn't trust my students to get it right 
uh, and to to act, you know, to assimilate the information. Um, now I don't do that. It's it's I expect you learn a book. And when I construct my learning exercises, um, if you haven't read the material, not familiar with the material, uh, you're going to be shown out very, very quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully not unduly embarrassed, but the peer pressure plays a role when you're in class and everyone else is, is spitting out the answers and you're clueless. Um, chances are you're going to pay better attention and, and buckle down and, and study harder the next time. But especially when you tie an evaluation tool, not only to your work, but now you put them into a group setting where the group has to be able to get scored based on your interaction. It changes the game. Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. And, and, and I do team learning uh, exercises. We do problem-based learning and case-based learning. But the team learning exercises are really excellent in that, uh, first of all, you enhance collaboration and communication between team members. And that's a fundamental element to everything that we do uh, in EMS is communication and collaboration and working with a team. So they learn it from the very beginning. It's a, it's a, a, uh, a mindset that we start developing in the very beginning of the class. The other important thing about the team learning is it's an extremely effective teaching tool, but, but it requires a great deal more work on your behalf to make sure that feedback is timely and appropriate. It's one thing to say, okay, class, you got a discussion group um, and I want you to develop a protocol for congestive heart failure. That's your project. Team A, you got it. Team B, you got it. You each work independently. When we get done, we're gonna, you're gonna hand your results to, to team B. Team B, you'll hand your results to team A. You'll critique each other's and then we'll, we'll blend the two protocols together to make one. And we're gonna grade you individually and by groups. Well, to do that, first of all, you're not going to find many educational institutions that are going to solely let you uh, grade people by group. There has to be some kind of individual accountability, and we call those readiness assessment tests. They're pop quizzes at the beginning of every single class. And the problem, uh, the, the thing you have to remember with those readiness assessment tests, they're, they're individual assessments, but they have to be, uh, the, the feedback from them has to be timely and public. If you're if you set up a team and you you're being graded as a as a group, uh, each team member deserves to know how well the the rest of the team members are prepared, and and to shift responsibilities for the people who are, are really good and, and working hard at things, and maybe to to uh, um, remove some of the responsibilities of the slackers, so that they don't drag the entire team down. And the only way to do that is to make the results of those individual readiness assessment tests public so that there's an element of you know, transparency and there's some peer pressure involved. But you have to do that that day. It doesn't do any good to grade a test and then post the results next week. Um, so you have to develop some, build some classroom time to, to grade those, those uh, rats, we call them, or uh, the pop quizzes. And, and make sure that those results are disseminated that day. So both the individual student knows how well they're doing and the group knows how well each individual group member is, is prepared for, for their work. Um, and that's some of the nuts and bolts that we don't really discuss in EMT instructor courses that we need to. I think, you know, Nancy's got a level one and a level two and a level three instructor course. Um, uh, we're working on developing one for our state where uh, you take, it's more of the, the nuts and bolts and the actually putting 
these broad concepts of adult education into play and how to design a curriculum and how to design an active learning exercise and how to conduct a scenario and that sort of thing that that we we don't we kind of glossed over in in initial EMS instructor education. And I got to tell you, I think that that's a lot of great information. And I think that if we can kind of start to think about, and this isn't money, right? That a school needs to spend or an ins, you know, a, no, a small program. Needs to, this is really sweat equity where you actually change a paradigm of what you're doing, but you have to care about it. Here's my here's my last thought, Kelly. Before I go to your final thought. The other thing that we need to start to think about, though, is we have to think about technology in the classroom. And when you talk about flipped classrooms and when you talk about hybrid classrooms and when you talk about changing how we're teaching our students, there's, there's a lot of focus that needs to go around technology. And everybody has a smartphone, right? We can get these, these apps that we can yeah. download that will allow us to poll that will allow us to poll the classroom, that will allow us to get into discussions based on those polls. And I think that, again, with the new mm -hmm. students that are coming into our classrooms for initial education, we've got to be able to change the paradigm of how we're doing it. And I think technology is how that needs to work. And if you're if you're not using technology in your classroom, I think you're behind the eight ball and you got to get on this train before it runs you down. Yeah, yeah, you... you 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 definitely need to embrace technology in modern EMS education in modern education period. The problem that we have run into in some of our classes is we're teaching in rural areas, and sometimes this hybrid classroom, uh, you know, broadens a technology gap. You, you've got this digital digital divide where some of the people that want to take EMT classes uh, are not well versed in computers. Uh, they're, they're maybe older, uh, Gen X or baby boomers, and, and they know how to turn one on and answer email with their kids. But, you know, looking up something on the Internet or, or participating in a webcast or, or using their learning management system is, is a chore for them, figuring out how to do it. Um, or they work in a they live in a rural area where the Internet service does not support streaming video. It's just too slow and too spotty and, and, and too uh too unreliable. So that's that's an issue that, that's not going to go away soon. Um, and when you set up your classroom that way, you need to you need to be aware of that and, and to to have a contingency plan in place. Yeah, the better we embrace technology uh, and and leverage it to our benefit, the better our classes are going to become, become. And there's plenty of resources out there right now, like you mentioned, the polling apps and things like Kahoot. Um, and, and Dan Lemmer's apps I use extensively, and I'll, I'll give Dan a plug. He just, I don't have the details on it, but he just uh, um, made an announcement on, on his site about a, a new EMS simulation game, an immersive uh, learning environment uh, EMS simulation that if it, uh, knowing, knowing how he does things, uh, I cannot wait to see this uh, and incorporate that in my classrooms as well. Uh, that may may in itself be a game changer in how we approach uh, emulation and scenarios in EMS education. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Is your agency stuck in the old lecture and practical lab format, the old paradigm, or are they spicing things up with multimedia and, and interaction and, and novel new ways to deliver content? We'd like to hear your thoughts and, and your experiences with it at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Sabalero coming to you over the internet, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. I'm going to catch you guys next week.